0: This morning, though, the other thing I'm excited about is 1 John. I've been talking about uh, teaching 1 John for about a month now, and one thing after another has just prevented launching into this series, so I am really excited that we're going to study 1 John. If you don't know where 1 John is, go to the end of your Bible and hang a left, and just keep going, and you'll eventually find 1 John. Here's a clue. It's right before 2 John, okay? Okay. Great little book of the Bible. Uh, As we often do when we start a new book of the Bible, we're going to provide something of an introduction this morning or an overview. So not so much a verse-by-verse study. There'll be a couple of different passages I I have you look at in the letter itself. Uh, But overall, I'm going to put a lot of verses on the big screen for you. Again, we call this a book. It's actually a letter. It was written by none other than Paul. That's right. (laughs) Just kidding. Just kidding. Uh, 1 John was obviously obviously written by John the Apostle, along with 2 John, 3 John, the Gospel of John, a uh, little bit of Bible trivia. What other book of the Bible did John also write? Revelation. The Book of Revelation. That's right. Together, these books are often called the Johannine Works. Uh, now, even though John does not specifically identify himself in this letter as the author, it is almost universally accepted that John is the one who wrote this. One commentator writes, Although this epistle is anonymous, its style and vocabulary clearly indicate that it was written by the author of the Gospel of John. Internal evidence also points to John as the author, and ancient testimony unanimously ascribes the epistle to him. At the end of the 19th century, a scholar by the name of Ernest DeWitt Burton wrote, There can be no reasonable doubt that these books were written by the same author. It was probably written sometime between A.D. 90 to A.D. 110. We don't know 100% for sure. Again, another commentary reads: the tone of the writing suggests they are the product of a mature man who has enjoyed profound spiritual experience, which points to the near end near the end of the first century. In addition, the character of the heresy combated in the letter. We'll talk more about that later also points to the same time, approximately A.D. 90. Now, because there is no specific greeting or audience that is identified in this letter, it is commonly believed that this is what was called a circular letter. And that is, it was circulated amongst several churches, probably in the area of uh, of Ephesus, where John the Apostle spent some time. Not many people know this, but John... Like Paul the Apostle and Timothy, John spent time overseeing the church work in Ephesus. Ephesus in the ancient world was really something of a famous church or a well-known church. It's where Paul addressed the book of Ephesians. It's where one of the seven letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation was addressed. David Guzik writes, Ephesus was a famous city in the ancient world with an equally famous church. Paul ministered in Ephesus for three years, Aquila and Priscilla, with Apollo served there. Paul's close associate, Timothy, worked in Ephesus, and according to strong and consistent historic tradition, the apostle John also ministered there. A church father by the name of Irenaeus writes of the church of Ephesus founded by Paul, with John continuing with them until the times of Trajan, who was a Roman emperor from AD 98 to AD 117. By the way, this is something of a sidebar, <clears throat> but speaking of dates, we have fragments of 1 John that present some of the earliest evidences of the New Testament texts. Some of these fragments date back as early as AD 150. In fact, 1 John is mentioned in what's called the Muratorian fragment, or the Muratorian canon, which is a copy of perhaps, quote, the oldest known list of most of the books of the New Testament, which dates back to A.D. 170. So that predates the Council of Nicaea. Just kind of fascinating stuff, but let me keep going. According to Fox's Book of Martyrs, I didn't know this until I started putting this study together. Check this out. The churches of Smyrna, Pergamus, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, and Thyatira were all founded by John the Apostle. Now, why is that interesting? Because along with the church in Ephesus, which we've established John spent time with, all those churches make up the seven churches that are addressed in the book of Revelation. So it would make sense then that Jesus would have John send letters to those specific seven churches here's a little bit more Bible trivia for you guys. The apostle John was the last surviving of the original 12 apostles. Interestingly, his brother James was the first of the original 12 who was put to death. Acts chapter 12 says, about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church, and he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Now, there had been a couple of attempts on John's life as well. These are noted historically. On one occasion, they tried to boil John alive in hot oil. According to Tertullian, in the Prescription of Heretics, John was plunged into boiling oil in Rome, suffering nothing from it. It said that John continued to preach from inside the pot. And all in the audience of the Colosseum were converted to Christianity upon witnessing this miracle. This event would have occurred late in the first century during the reign of the emperor Domitian, who was also known for his persecution of the Christians. Again, Fox's Book of Martyrs also says that from Ephesus, John was ordered to be sent to Rome, where it is affirmed he was cast into a cauldron of boiling oil. He escaped by miracle without injury. Several artist depictions of John being boiled alive in oil. Uh, On another occasion, an attempt was made to poison John. According to early Christian writings, John was brought before Emperor Domitian and made to drink poison, they put poison in his wine, which did not hurt him. The dregs of it killed a criminal on whom it was tried, and John revived him. Uh, There's a painting here by Ambrosio di Baldici, called St. John Drinks the Poison Cup. And here's the inscription, or the description, not the inscription. The pagan priest, Aristotomus, sorry, perhaps the man on the far right, has offered to convert if John will drink a cup of poison and survive. To demonstrate the, the efficacy of the poison, the priest first administers it to two condemned prisoners. They die. But John drinks the poison without being harmed. Then Aristotomus, still doubting and despite his promise, challenges John to revive the two dead men. In the golden legend, John hands his tunic to Aristotomus and tells him to place it over the dead men with the words, the apostle of Christ sends me to you that you may rise up in the name of Christ. In the painting, it is a young servant who does this, but the effect is the same. The men arise and the priest converts. In fact... According to early church tradition, the symbol of John the Apostle was a serpent coming out of a cup of wine because of these attempts to poison him by putting wine or poison into his wine. Uh, There was one other way they tried to deal with John. Anybody remember what it was? They sentenced him to an island called Patmos. We talked about this in our youth group on Wednesday night. Listen to this description of Patmos. David Guzik writes, The island of Patmos was like the Alcatraz island of the Roman Empire. It was used as a prison island and functioned as a jail without bars. The island was rich in marble, and most of the prisoners were forced laborers in marble quarries. Patmos was a rocky, desolate island about 10 miles long and 6 miles wide. Joseph Seiss writes, Less than a year ago, I passed that island. It is a mere mass of barren rocks. Dark in color and cheerless in form, it lies out in the open sea near the coast of Western Asia Minor. It has neither trees nor rivers nor any land for cultivation except some little nooks between the ledges of the rocks. Albert Barnes described Patmos as lonely, desolate, barren, uninhabited, seldom visited. It had all the requisites which could be desired for a place of punishment, and banishment to that place would accomplish all that a persecutor could wish in silencing the apostle without putting him to death. And John writes, I was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. So he was banished there. They sent him there to shut him up. But what did John do when he was on the island of Patmos? He wrote the book of Revelation which is perhaps one of the most influential books of the entire Bible. Now, why take the time to even go into all of that? Because it is entirely possible that in addition to the book of Revelation, that John also wrote the Gospel of John, and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John while he was also on the island of Patmos. We have no way of knowing this for sure, But it is possible, one commentator writes about 1 John, a date of about AD 90 with John writing from his exile on Patmos ends up being the best proposition. And I just think that's fascinating. Because I think that every single one of us should always look at the circumstances that we're in and seek the Lord for God. How do you want to use me in these circumstances? John is sent to Alcatraz, essentially, and writes some of the best books of the Bible while he's there. It's amazing. Now, John was known by several names to the early church fathers, John the Evangelist, John of Patmos, John the Elder, John the Revelator. Does anybody remember the nickname that Jesus gave to John and his brother James? Is it already up there? Yeah, exactly. See, that was hard. (laughs) Boanerges, which means... Sons of Thunder, in Mark's Gospel, chapter 3, verse 17, we read of James, the son of Zebedee, John, the brother of James, to whom Jesus gave the name Boanerges, that is, Sons of Thunder. David Guzik writes, Mark gives this helpful note for the Gentiles by translating Boanerges, which means Sons of Thunder, and is perhaps a reference to the fiery disposition of James and John as displayed in Luke, chapter 9, verse 54. Do you remember that account? In Luke, chapter 9, Jesus is headed towards Jerusalem to be lifted up or to be received up. And as they come into Samaria, it says they would not receive him because his face was set for the journey towards Jerusalem. Now, check this out. It says when when James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? Now, you have to love the fact that not only do they think they're doing the right thing by offering this suggestion, but they even back it up biblically, right? I mean, this is what Elijah did. Should we just burn them alive? And then Jesus turns and it says he rebuked them and said, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of. The son of man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. By the way, this is important for us to remember as Christians today. It should cause us to evaluate how we think of people that vote differently than us, right? Or who hold to a different belief about certain things than we do, right? Like vaccinations. Lord, should we burn them alive? The Son of Man came to save people. What are you talking about? We as Christians think we're doing God a favor, by offering those suggestions, so it's a powerful reminder. Now eventually, what did John become known as, right? He goes, he goes from being a son of thunder, but eventually he becomes known as the Apostle of Love," which is vaguely reminiscent of like a Barry White album name or something. The <laughs> Apostle of Love. In fact, in fact, early church tradition holds that as john reached his elderly years that he would often be helped to the lectern by some of his associates where large crowds would have gathered to hear him speak i mean this is the last living of the original 12 right this would this would be like hearing francis chan or, or louis giglio or another big name in the Christian world. And church tradition has it that John would, would raise his elderly hands and a hush would descend upon the crowd. And John would say, my little children, love one another. And then he would step away from the lectern. That was the entire message. The apostle of love. My little children, love one another. Now, the question is, how do you go from being a guy who says, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and burn them alive, Jesus? Would that be a good idea? How do you go from that? How do you go from being a son of thunder to an apostle of love? Here's what's interesting. When John wrote his gospel account, multiple times he refers to himself in that account as this. The disciple whom Jesus loved. Five times he calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. It's not the disciple that Jesus tolerated, right? Or the disciple that Jesus put up with. No, no, no. John knew that Jesus loved him. And it was Jesus's love for John that transformed him. It changed him from being a hot head Into someone with a soft heart. He went from being a son of thunder to the apostle of love. Think about the implications of this statement from 1 John chapter 4. Brenton mentioned this last Sunday as the memory verse in our Sunday school. First John chapter 4, verse 19 says this: We love him because he first loved us. Let's say that together again this morning, right? We love him because he first loved us. One more time. repetition's the key to learning. We love him because he first loved us. Now, you may notice that up here I have we love dot, dot, dot. Here's why. When you look in the original language, the him does not appear. So even though a meaning of the verse can be we love Jesus because he first loved us, Here's a more powerful application. We love, period, because he first loved us. We love Jesus. We love God. We love each other. Why? Because Jesus loved us. It's the love of Jesus that changes us. David Guzik points out that Charles Spurgeon was a man who preached the whole counsel of God, But was careful to not excessively repeat himself in any one area. Yet he preached five remarkable sermons on these eight words alone. Let me just read to you some excerpts from Spurgeon here. There is no exception to this rule. If a man does not love God, neither is he born of God. Show me a fire without heat, then show me regeneration that does not produce love. Jesus loved you when you lived carelessly. When you neglected his word, when the knee was unbent in prayer, he loved some of you when you were in the dancing saloon, when you were in the playhouse, even when you were in the brothel. He loved you when you were at hell's gate and drank damnation at every drought. He loved you when you could have not been worse or farther from him than you were. It is not uncommon to tell Sunday school children that the way to be saved is to love Jesus, which is not true. The way to be saved for man, woman, or child is to trust Jesus for the pardon of sin, and then trusting Jesus, love comes as a fruit. Love is by no means the root. Faith alone occupies that place. Look first to Christ's love, for his love will beget in us love to him. Love believed is the mother of loved returned. Forget your own love to him and think of his great love to you. And then immediately your love will come to something more like that which you would desire it to be. We never make ourselves love Christ more by flogging ourselves for not loving him more. We come to love those better whom we love by knowing them better. If you want to love Christ more, think more of him. Think more of what you have received From him. And without question, love is by far one of the main messages of the book of 1 John. Not only God's love for us, but our love for him, and also our love for one another. Think of some of these great statements on love from the book of 1 John. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. This is the message you heard from the beginning that we should love one another. By this we know love because he laid down his life for us and we also should lay down our lives for the brethren. And then John unpacks it. He says, Whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in that person? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. This is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son and love one another. Let us love one another for love is of God and everyone who loves is born of God and knows of God. Check this out. He who does not love does not know God for God is love. Perfect love casts out fear. If someone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he's a liar. We had fun with this on Wednesday night with the youth group. Because John says this multiple times. If you say one thing, but you live another way, you're a liar. Liar! John says that multiple times. If someone says, I love God, but hates his brother. If you're a racist, if you're a bigot, but you say you love God, you're a liar. I didn't say it. The word of God says it. Because he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, How can that person love God whom he hasn't seen? This is the commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. By this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and keep his commandments, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. I can just keep going and going. One of the overarching themes of 1 John is love. Now, one of the things I love, no pun intended, Is when a writer tells you why they wrote something. And John, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us why he writes something. For instance, when it comes to the gospel of John, John says straight up in John chapter 20 verse 31, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that believing you may have life in his name. So John straight up says, the reason I wrote the gospel of John is so that you would believe and that in believing you would have life. That's the purpose of the gospel of John. So check this out. If you're ever talking to a friend or a family member who isn't a Christian, but they're interested in starting to read the Bible and they say, where should I start? Tell them the gospel of John. Carry around one of these with you. Free copies of John's gospel, living water. Why? Because John says the whole reason I wrote this is so that you would believe. And God says in Isaiah chapter 50, it's happening to me, Brenton, right? For those of you who here last week, it was like Keystone Cops. He was just knocking stuff over left and right. So he's going to build me a bigger pulpit. The word of the Lord has, Yeah. But check it out. God says, okay, if God says in Isaiah 55, my word will not return to me void, but it will accomplish that for which I purposed it. And John's gospel says the purpose of the gospel of John is that people would believe. Then you have to take God at his word. You have to be willing to share the gospel of John with people who don't believe because the purpose of the gospel of John is that people will believe. And one of the things that I love about 1 John is that John tells us why he wrote this book. As a for instance, 1 John chapter 1, verse 4, John says this, These things we write to you that your joy may be full. Okay, so check it out. Fullness of joy is one of the purposes of studying 1 John. That means then, as we study 1 John, we should expect to experience a fullness of joy. Here's another reason. First John chapter two, verse one, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. Okay, so victory over sin. That's another reason that first John was written. Number three, John says in first John chapter five, verse 13, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the son of God, that you may know you have eternal life. You ever question whether or not your relationship with Jesus is secure study first John John says I wrote this for you who believe so that you would know that you have eternal life and that you would continue to believe so here's some reasons here's some things we can expect from a study of first John fullness of joy victory over sin secure in our salvation continuing to believe anybody interested in those things I am So study 1 John with us. Now, here's another reason John wrote the letter of 1 John. I skipped over it. 1 John 2, verse 26, John says, These things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. Okay, what's that all about? False teachers. Like a lot of the New Testament letters, John was writing this letter to combat some false teaching that was creeping into the church. The specific heresy that John was writing against was a forerunner of second-century Gnosticism. Now, you may remember a little bit about Gnosticism if you studied through the book of Colossians with us. Gnosticism taught that all matter is essentially evil, and spirit is essentially good. This dualistic viewpoint caused false teachers to deny the incarnation of Jesus, and hence the resurrection of Jesus, The true God, they taught, could never indwell a physical body of flesh and blood. Therefore, the human body Jesus supposedly possessed was not real, but only a phantom. And there were all kinds of these weird myths about how when Jesus walked along the sand, he didn't leave footprints and things like that. Gnostics also taught that since the human body was essentially an envelope for the spirit, And since nothing the body could do could affect the spirit, then ethical decisions didn't matter, right? Essentially, people had no sin. Another thing that Gnostics taught was a form of spiritual enlightenment. In fact, the term Gnostic means to know. And so by saying they had these profound spiritual experiences, they elevated themselves above the clear teaching of Scripture which essentially sanctioned moral laxity. Now look, you think, well, that doesn't seem that big of a deal in today's age. Listen, how many times have you ever had a conversation with someone who claims to be a Christian, who begins a story by saying this, well, I just feel like God wouldn't do that. No offense, I really don't care how you feel about it, right? If it says it in God's word, that's what's true. We have to learn, as Christians, even if we have an experience, to bring that experience under the authority of the Word of God and view our experience through the lens of Scripture, not elevate experience over the Word of God and say, well, this happened to me, therefore I don't believe what the Bible teaches. Do you think Satan's not... Above or beyond causing you to have an experience that would cause you to question the veracity of God's word? Scripture straight up says Satan appears as an angel of light. Th- think of the people who are out there having apparitions of the Virgin Mary and saying, Oh, she's a co mediatrix. Uh, the Bible doesn't teach that. No, 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 but I had an experience. I don't care. <laughs> It's a deception. And so this does become very relevant. And John writes these specific things. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, which our hands have handled. He's basically saying, I was there. I touched him. I know he was in a physical body. He says, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. Every spirit that does not confess <clears throat> that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. John says, "Test the spirits." Okay, so a ghost appears to you, right? You you have a vision of an angel. Just say, "I have a little test for you. Do you confess that Jesus Christ came in the flesh?" If that ghost or that spirit says no, you say, "Well, you're not of God. So I'm not going to listen to you." You say, Kevin, that sounds really weird. Scripture says, test the spirits. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Sorry. <laughs> he writes this, little children, let no one deceive you. This is simple. He who practices righteousness is righteous. He who sins is of the devil. In this, the children of God and the children of devil are manifest. Whoever doesn't practice righteousness is not of God. Boom. Mic drop. Simple. Over and over, he stresses this idea, by this we know, by this we know. Again, we talked about this in youth group on Wednesday night, eight times in five chapters, John says, by this we know, by this we know. In fact, this is the only place in the Bible this exact phrase appears, is in 1 John. We've given the name to this series, the test of knowing him. Because the idea is that in the letter of 1 John, John provides certain tests whereby a person can know if they truly know Jesus. Let me summarize some things for you. 1 John chapter 1, here's three things that he says. If we say that we have fellowship with him but walk in darkness, we lie and don't practice the truth. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. In chapter two, John says, he who says, I know him, but doesn't keep his commandments is a liar, right? And the truth is not in him. He who says he abides in him ought to walk just as he walked. He who says he's in the light and hates his brother is in darkness, Chapter four, John says, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? Do you see what one of the tests that John provides is? If you say this, but you do this, you're not telling the truth. You are either deceived You're either deceiving yourself or you're deceiving others. If those things don't match up. And then eight times, again, eight times in five short chapters, John says, by this we know. One author writes this. Prominent in 1 John is the theme of Christian certainty. 39 times the verb know appears. Check this out. Christian truth is beyond the realm of speculation. It is moored to the historical event of Jesus Christ and the apostolic event or the apostolic witness to that event. A Christian can know that they are saved. A Christian can know that they know Jesus Christ. I'm going to give you several verses here. I'll put them up on the big screen for you. Chapter 2, verse 3. By this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Boom. Obedience. If you don't obey the word of God, but you claim to know Jesus, according to 1 John, you don't know Jesus. Because by this we know that we know him. We obey his commandments. Chapter 2, verse 5. Whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we're in him. Chapter 3, verse 16. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Now, this one is very searching. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth, by this we know that we are of the truth. Chapter 3, verse 24. He he who keeps his commandments abides in him. By this we know that he abides in us. Chapter 5, verse 2. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. Chapter 3, verse 14. Kind of cheating on this one, but it's a really important verse. Check this out. We know that we have passed from death to life. This is how you know that you've been born again. This is how we know that we've gone from death to life. How? Because we love the brethren. Whoever does not love his brother still abides in death. That's a big deal. This is how you know that you know Jesus Christ. Here's the tests. If you say one thing, but you live a completely different way. If you say you know him, but you walk in darkness. If you say you love God, but don't obey his word. If you have this world's goods, but but don't share those goods with anyone who's in need. If you say you love God, but you're a racist or a bigot, or you hate your brother. Again, John several times uses a strong word and says, You're a liar. You're a liar. These things become the test of do we really know Jesus? Now, it's important that you hear. These are not works that we do to earn a relationship with Jesus. These are the evidences of someone who has been truly transformed by having a relationship with Jesus. In other places in the Scripture, they're called the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You see, those things are the result. They are the supernatural byproduct of the Spirit of God working in our hearts to change us and transform us. John says, by this we know that we know Him. By this we know that that we know him. So the test of knowing him, that's what the book of 1 John is all about. So I encourage you to come back next week. We're going to start digging into this verse by verse. Let me encourage you to read ahead, go through chapter one, and we'll take a look at it next week. We're going to pray. Kayla's going to come and lead us in a few songs to close our service. Uh, We're not done. Uh, this is one of those things where I, I like to park here for a moment and just remind everybody. This is the response time now. right? This is where we actually give the Holy Spirit an opportunity to work in someone in such a way that they may respond to the Word of God. Our worship is a response to who Jesus is and what Jesus has done on our behalf. And I just want to say, if you're here this morning and you don't know this Jesus that we're talking about, you have that opportunity today. You have that opportunity today to just believe and and just say, "I, I want to know Jesus. I'm choosing to put my faith. I don't understand everything, but I'm choosing to believe. I think a lot of times we think that we have to understand everything in order to believe. Scripture says, by faith. We understand. Not we understand so we have faith. By faith we understand. You see, we choose to believe. Belief is a very simple thing. It's a Greek word, pistis, and it means to rest your weight entirely upon. Every single person in this room this morning has faith. You know how I know? Because you sat in that chair. You came in here this morning and you rested your weight entirely upon that chair. That's what faith is. Faith is you making the conscious decision to say, I don't understand everything, but I'm going to rest my weight entirely upon who Jesus is and what he has done on my behalf. And I trust And I choose to believe and see when that happens, at that moment, the veil will be lifted from your eyes. The Holy Spirit will come and live inside of you and he will begin to illuminate your understanding and suddenly it'll be like blinders were taken off. And you'll be born again, grafted into the vine, adopted into God's family and guaranteed a home in heaven. You know why? Not because you deserve it or because you earn it, but because God loves you. And he chose to do it and offer you that in his son, Jesus. So, Father, this morning as we close this time in just a few simple songs of worship, I just want to pray for your Holy Spirit to work in people's hearts around the room. And perhaps there are some this morning, Lord, who've never made that decision. Perhaps there are people here this morning who have believed. But like John says in this letter... This was written for those who have, who have believed that they would know that they have eternal life and that they would continue to believe. Perhaps there's people here, Lord, who just need a fresh filling of your spirit, that there's people here who, who just need to be reminded of who you are. And I just pray, Lord, that you meet us all here in a special way. Draw us to yourself. Fill us up afresh. Meet us in all of our individual areas of need and do a great work to make a name for yourself. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus'